Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You may be seated. September 11th was a routine morning for me. I'd woken up around 5.15, 5.30, jumped in the shower, got dressed in a suit, grabbed my briefcase, whispered goodbye to my wife, who was still asleep in bed, and jumped into a car that took me to LaGuardia Airport. I got on a plane that left Detroit, left for Detroit at 7 o'clock a.m. As we touched down, we did what everyone does on those morning flights. They put their cell phones on. As we were grabbing our belongings and headed off the plane, I heard some rumblings at around 8.45 that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. Some of the people on the flight, their colleagues were in the World Trade Center. Their offices were in the World Trade Center. They were away for the day on business. As we made our way through the very long terminal at Detroit Airport, I stopped to use the bathroom, and on my way out, I caught a glimpse of a television at a bar that was serving coffee, and all of the broadcasts were focused on the towers and the smoke billowing out. It was at that moment, few of us had gathered around who had gotten off that flight, where we saw the second plane hit the other tower. It was at that moment, we knew we were in no accident. I instinctively went right to the rental car counter where I had already organized a car. Jumped in, and instead of going to the office where I was supposed to be doing work for the day in Detroit, I drove to my brother's house. There, in his living room, I watched the towers fall. But sadly, I couldn't get in touch with my wife. She was in Manhattan, working in Midtown, and if you remember from that day, most cell service and most line service were out, couldn't call. And all she had heard were that planes were hijacked and slamming into buildings. And she knew that I was on a plane that day and she couldn't hear me. She didn't know where I was. I uh, took some of my brother's clothes, changed out of my suit, jumped in the car, because at this point, the FAA had made a total ground stop, and I knew it wouldn't be any time soon that planes would be flying. And I decided to drive back to New York. Through some quirk, some miracle of fate, the phone line worked for a minute and a half, where I caught my wife's voice, screaming and crying as she was literally underneath the desk, thinking that the worst had happened to her husband of all of 15 months. I told her I was okay, I was in a car, and I was driving back home. I told her to make her way back to our uptown apartment. She did. I drove home that day in what was one of the most surreal moments of the highway I could ever imagine. Would pull over at a rest stop to refuel, and there, large, burly men, three, four hundred pounds, driving 45-foot trucks, tattoos named Spike, crying like children in awe. Men and women were turning their roots around, headed to New York City, leaving the trucks behind them and just bringing the cab to do anything that could help. 
I arrived at the George Washington Bridge around 11.30 p.m. No cars were allowed to cross any tunnel or bridge that day. Fortunately, I had a special pass as a clergy member, and after inspecting my car thoroughly, I was offered a police escort over the GW Bridge. I crossed over, I got home, and there I saw Dory, someone who I wasn't able to speak to all day on this tragic day, and we only knew we were okay just for a minute of conversation. We held each other and didn't say a word for what must have been at least 10 minutes of embrace. And it was on that day that a part of our marriage changed. It changed for the obvious reasons, but it also changed because we realized we would never leave the home again. We would never walk away, no matter what the conditions or what the experience, without taking a moment to give the other a kiss, to say the three simple words, I love you. Because we realized, had we not done it that day, had something worse happened, had God forbid I'd been on that ill-fated plane as opposed to the one that went to Detroit, would we ever been able to live with that level of remorse or regret? What we realize on what is about to be tomorrow, the 10th anniversary of the worst day in America's history, is that so much of our lives have been shaped by that day. As I wrote in my weekly article, it's really a day that has since shaped a decade. And for all of our lives, each and every one of you has a story. You know where you were. You remember when you heard the news. Some of you who are in this room were in the building when the planes hit. Some of you were nearby. Some of you lost family and lost friends. We remember combing the streets of Manhattan, plastering signs that said missing with the pictures of our loved ones on it. We remember that incredible numb pain that ran through our bodies, the paranoia that set in of when will the next attack be and how's it going to get us? Where will they take advantage of us when we least expect it as they did on that sunny crystal blue morning of September the 11th? What we realize in the shaping of our lives is that September 11th shaped many lives and change the fate for countless people in this room and outside this room. And I just want to give you a few examples as I read in a beautiful and meaningful, moving article that I read this week in the paper about a handful of lives and the way they were shaped by the events of September 11th and hopefully towards the end offer a little bit of Jewish perspective on what this means. One of the fascinating statistics that happened in the months in the last quarter of the year of 2001 was according to research at the University of Cornell, more people died by car accidents on the road from September the 15th through December 31st of the year 2001 than in any other quarter in our history. The result was that more people were afraid of air travel they didn't want to deal with the hassles of the inspections at security, and as a result, they chose to take to the roads. Because of that, the percentage of people that died increased significantly, with 
an attribution of over 350 people in the Northeast that died as a result of choosing to take the road versus the air. How this decision of September 11th shaped lives, gave us lives, and took away lives. Or the strange fate of Flight 587, November the 12th, two months and a day after September 11th, a routine flight had taken off to the Dominican from JFK Airport. You remember that terrible flight crashed over the Rockaways. All people on board died, and two people on the ground died. One of the young men that died was a boy named Chris Lawler, who was a student at St. John's University. His best friend in the world died in the World Trade Center crash. He was so distraught over his death that he decided to take a semester off school and stay at home with his mother, who lived in Queens. He was at home when Flight 587 crashed over his house and a piece of the fuselage came crashing down on him and his mom and took his life away. How 9-11 shaped so many lives and changed so many fates. Or the story of two people, Nick Marson and Diane Krischke. They were both on separate flights headed to the United States on September 11th when the FAA made a ground stop and forced all planes to land elsewhere. Their respective flights were grounded in Newfoundland, and there they had to stay for five days on army cots and limited amounts of food. They started talking, they became friends, they stayed in touch with each other, and two years later, they married each other. How 9-11 shaped these two totally different lives on totally different planes, but because of this ground stop, they were able to meet and fall in love and celebrate that day. How many people in this room have watched the show Family Guy or American Dad? A young Jewish writer named Seth McFarlane, one of the world's most creative and successful, talented. He was at a party in Boston on September the 10th he had too much to drink and got hung over. He missed his flight on September 11th, headed for San Francisco by just 10 minutes. He screamed and he pleaded with the gate agent to let him on board the plane, that he had been out the night before and drank too much, that she insisted that the boarding doors were closed and he couldn't get on. It was that plane that eventually went on to crash into the Pentagon. Because of it, his life was saved, and he went on to create a host of shows for Fox TV and become quite successful and have a different perspective in life. Or the story of fate and closure of a woman whose husband proposed to her by offering her a $2 bill of which he had an exact replica. His proposal said, we're two of a kind. She didn't hear from her husband on September 11th, who worked at Cantor Fitzgerald, one of the top floors of the World Trade Center. But on a random day, about 18 months after the crash, she got a call and said, we think we found something of DNA of your husband's. 
They found none of his clothes. They found none of his bones. But they found a charred piece of his wallet. And inside the wallet came folded perfectly in pristine that $2 bill. She opened her wallet and matched it to hers. She cried and she felt as if the burden of the world that she had walked around with for the past 18 months was lifted off her shoulders. That she had what so many people don't have from the Trade Center, a sense of closure, a sense of completion. We have so many of these stories. Stories of fate, stories of loves that happened, of closure that was afforded, of lives that were saved, and of people who ran to catch planes and got on board at the last minute. People like Todd Beamer, who changed his flight to decide to spend time with his kids, who was supposed to leave on Monday, but instead spent the time with his children and got on the flight Tuesday. That Flight 93 crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. He was one of the heroes that tried to overtake the hijackers. What we realize is that this day shaped the nation. This day shaped our lives. This day shaped each and every one of us. As I spoke to Henry and Isabel, I told them about the juxtaposition of the two partiot that we read. Kitetse and Kitavo. Kitetse begins when you leave to go out in war. That's how the Parsha begins that we read today. And next week it says, Kitavo la'aretz. When you enter your homeland, this is what you will do and how you will behave. What it tells us is, without the warfare that you will have, that you will fight, you won't be able to understand what it is to appreciate entering in the homeland. It reminds me of the system that's questioned but so powerful in Israel. The day of remembrance, Yom HaZikaron, a powerful and solemn day in Israel, where the streets go silent and all reflect, not a soul isn't touched. Not a soul isn't touched by someone who was lost and fighting for Israel's independence and sovereignty. Immediately juxtaposed to Yom HaAtzma'ut, to the day of independence. Because the creators and founders of the state believed that how can you have a moment of independence if you don't appreciate the sacrifices that were made? How can you go into the homeland as we read in the Torah if you don't understand what it is to fight for that homeland and going out in Kitetse? That's what today is about on this 10th anniversary of this horrific day in our history. A day that we realize shapes who we are, shapes the way we behave, shapes the way we think, shapes the fact that we take our shoes off at the airport, shapes the way that we kiss our wives and our husbands before we leave for work, knowing the reality of the difference between taking it for granted, making it perfunctory and meaningful, shapes the way that we realize miracles of fate and of faith who was able to make the plane and who wasn't offers that sense of meaning, understanding, and closure in our lives. And this day, where we commemorate the loss of those lives, I invite you all to rise with me. And I invite Kenner Singer forward as we find more than appropriate. We will offer the Kale Malay prayer, the prayer of memory, for all of those who were killed on board those four aircraft for the people in the Pentagon, the World Trade Center, and in Shanksville.
and for all of those of our loved ones, our friends, and our family who are taken from us. May we never take one day for granted. May we realize each and every day how our lives were influenced and shaped for the better by the sacrifices that were taken. And may it add meaning to our lives. Amen.
Exalted and compassionate God, grant infinite rest in your sheltering presence among the holy and pure to the souls of those who left us through the acts of terrorists on September the 11th, 2001. Merciful one, we ask that our loved ones that we remember find perfect peace in your eternal embrace. May they be bound in the bond of life eternal. May we always remember them. May we always remember that terrible day. And let us together say, Amen. I want to invite you all to remain standing. And for those who feel comfortable to join with me in the offering of the Kaddish Yatom, the Mourner's Kaddish, for all of those who perished on September the 11th. Yikadal v'yikadash shemei rabah v'yamah divrach irutei v'yamlich malchutei v'chayechon v'yomechon Amen. <laughs> Yehesh lama raba min shemaya, v'chayim aleinu, v'al kol Yisrael, v'imru, amen. Oseh shalom mimramav, uya oseh shalom, aleinu v'al kol Yisrael, v'imru, amen. We remain standing, page 155, so the Chazan leads us.